0: chapter 2. Sunday morning studying the book of Revelation together and just begun our series not too long ago. As we're turning uh, there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible Genesis to Revelation and we'll look to conclude uh, the book of Amos this evening. Each of you are invited. Hopefully you'll need rain gear coming this evening. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 jesus speaking to the angel of the church of ephesus Write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands i know your works your labor your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil and you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have Uh, "...persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray together. And Father, we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Spirit, that we might have ears to hear what it is that Your Spirit and our Savior would speak to us this morning from Your Word. And we pray for this work of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. In coming to chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation, we come to the second major division of the book of Revelation. The second of the three major divisions is Jesus Uh, lays out in chapter 1 of verse 19. Uh, The things which you have seen which constitute chapter 1, the things which are chapter 2 and 3, and then the things which will come after uh, chapters 4 all the way to uh, the end of the book. And this section that we find ourselves now in constitutes here chapters 2 and 3, and it speaks of the church age, that time in in history, that we live in presently as Christians, and uh, leading up to the great tribulation period, the seven-year period of tribulation. And Jesus encapsulates His instruction to us uh, concerning the church age in the form of seven letters that He writes to seven different churches. And the churches are listed in chapter 1, verse 11, And uh, in addressing these letters that that Jesus does to the seven churches, he follows the very order in which the churches are listed there in chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. It's very important for us to understand that while these letters are addressed by Jesus to uh, seven specific churches in the 1st century church, that they are intended to apply to every single uh, church in, uh, in human history in the church age, and also intended to apply to every single individual Christian uh, as well, including today. Because Jesus closes each one of these letters in exactly the same way when He uh, declares that uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It has something to say. Every letter has something to say to every church and to every Christian throughout the age. Someone might wonder why these seven churches. After all, there were churches in uh, in the first century and in the early church that were in some respects uh, uh, more well known than some that are listed among the seven. We could think about the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi, the church at Antioch. Why aren't they listed? And it's these, uh, these seven. Somehow, uh, within these seven churches, this, uh, there's a perfect combination of those things which are good, which please the Lord, and that he wants to commend in churches and commend in Christians in in every part of the church age. And then also there are things which are uh, bad and what Jesus knows would be a temptation for all churches, all churches subsequent to these churches, to all Christians subsequent to the uh, churches that uh, uh, attended these churches, uh, to be uh, fall into, and Jesus wanted us to be warned about them. These seven church letters can be applied in three principal ways. Number one, they were written to seven actual churches that existed in the first century. And then, second, they are to be applied to every single local individual church that uh, it, it exists in the world. And Uh, every church, uh, this one included, at any moment in time typically, we are characterized supremely by one or one or two of the seven churches that he lays out here in these two uh, chapters. So as a pastor, I can sit down, as I uh, uh, will uh, often do, and I can read through these seven churches and then look at the church as it is right now, and, uh, d- and then discern which one of the seven churches uh, presently are we the most like in terms of characteristics, and then to receive God's encher- encouragement to that church, or to receive uh, the warning or the exhortation that, that He, uh, that he uh, spoke to that church uh, as well. And then third, we also can apply these letters to our personal lives, our personal relationship with Jesus. And they're a a fabulous way to keep our uh, own personal Christian lives very, very well-directed spiritually. Churches are, are after all, uh, made up of people. And a church becomes what it becomes in, in many respects based upon the kind of Christian that attends there. And uh, and so, a church will never rise above in any way or be different than uh, the significant majority of the people that attend that church. And so, it has an application to us uh, individually as well. And the seven letters are a wonderful grid to run where we are present tense in our relationship with Jesus Christ through so we can then see which church represents us presently and then receive the encouragements and the exhortations accordingly. Each of the seven churches, they all follow basically the same uh, outline. There is the messenger of the individual church who is uh, greeted and then Jesus follows it with a self-description. The self-description contains some, uh, something from the description that is made of him in Revelation uh, chapter 1. Jesus finds it necessary to remind each church of something about himself that they have uh, forgotten. And, uh, and, and so it's not a random kind of uh, bringing up these this elements of this self-description. Jesus then declares to each church, I know your works. He then uh, rebukes the church for... uh, He commends the church, first of all. And then he rebukes the church or exhorts the church for something that is going wrong. He reminds them of His coming. And then an exhortation to have an ear to hear what it is that He's speaking to the church and that it is Him speaking. And then a promise to the overcomers. Something of God's grace. But in all of this, it really is important to remember that this book, even this section of the book, is not given to us supremely uh, as a revelation of the churches, but it is a revelation to us of Jesus Christ, a revelation to Him of what is important to Him about any local church, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he wants associated with his name, what he does not want associated with his name. And not just a local church, but also in our individual lives as well. The background to the city of Ephesus, we could fill the rest of our time talking about the significance of the city. It was a very significant city, but we'll uh, limit ourselves very much this morning. It was a commercial center. It was a political center. It was a a trading center. It was a very demonic uh, center uh, of idolatry, uh, uh, very much engaged in uh, the occult. But I'll limit myself to its spiritual history and its spiritual privileges. The Apostle Paul first visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. He was only able to spend a very short period of time there, and then he left to continue that missionary journey and returned then to his sending church. In the time that elapsed between his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey, when he returned to Ephesus, he, the, the church was influenced by a man by the name of Apollos, and also by a very spiritually dear couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. Paul returned to the church on his third missionary journey, and all told, he would invest three years of his life in establishing that church. Far longer than he spent at any church that he established in, in his missionary journeys. Upon his departure from Ephesus, He then turned the church over to Timothy to become the pastor there. And then somewhere down the line, uh, the Apostle John became uh, the pastor of the church until that pastor was interrupted by his exile to Patmos, the writing of this letter, the death of Domitian, and then he returned to Ephesus to continue to pastor the church. But it gives you some idea of the immense kind of spiritual privileges, at least in terms of leadership, that this church had had enjoyed. Jesus dictated uh, this letter to the church at Ephesus about 30, uh, 40 years after it had been established by Paul and about uh, 30 years after Paul had written his letter to it. You notice he begins the letter by addressing the messenger or the angel uh, of the church. The angel appears to speak of the pastor of the church. There are some people who believe that in light of this, that every church kind of has a guardian angel that's been assigned to it. I don't hold that view, and I'll tell you why here in just a a moment. But the Greek word translated angel in the New Testament, it oftentimes refers to an angelic being, but the word literally means messenger. And sometimes in the New Testament, it is used to speak of human messengers. For instance, when... Jesus spoke of John the Baptist. He used this very same word to describe John as an angel, as a messenger. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus said concerning John the Baptist, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. uh, The word is used to describe the messengers of John the Baptist, who came to Jesus, carrying the message of John the Baptist, asking him whether he is the Messiah or not, or should we look for someone Uh, else. And they were described, though being human, as being uh, uh, angels, so to speak, as being messengers. When Jesus sent his disciples before him as he was making his way uh, to Jerusalem, he wanted them to go to the various cities to prepare the way for his coming. He sent them forth as messengers. And and the gospel uses the very same uh, word, Uh, here. And so the context determines whether it is referring to an angelic messenger or whether the word is being used to refer to a human messenger. And since the head of a local church is a human being uh, called to deliver God's message and not an angelic being, It seems best to see it as referring to the pastor or whoever was responsible for delivering God's Word and His uh, truth to that uh, church. You notice the name that Jesus came to them with in verse 1. And again, to each church, he comes to them in a different way, something from his description in chapter 1, something that they had either uh, forgotten and needed to be reminded of, or they needed to be doubly reminded of. And we all know what it's like to be in a place in our life where we need to be doubly reminded of something that we already know. Well, He comes to them, you notice, as the One who holds the seven stars in His right hand, and as the One who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And again, the seven stars appear to refer to the spiritual leaders of the local church, as we saw in in chapter 1, verse 20 last time. And the seven golden lampstands refer to the seven churches now there's two descriptions here but they all communicate both of them communicate the same thing both elements of jesus's self-description here emphasize his nearness they emphasize his intimate presence among them and 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 communicating even to us today that he is here He is presently here in this room with us. He is here in the fellowship hall. He is here in the youth uh, rooms. He is here in the toddler room, in the children's ministry. He is here uh, in the entirety of the the property in the courtyard when we assemble together. And when he talks about uh, walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the walking there, the word that is used, it speaks of walking Uh, judicially because uh, churches claim to in this world represent Christ we claim to be being faithful in pointing people uh, to God Uh, Jesus in every church he looks at the church he judges it judicially he looks at it in order to make sure to see whether we're doing so. That what says it's a church in the world is actually being what he has called the church to be uh, in the world. And so what they had forgotten concerning him, and this was a reminder to them that he was in their midst every time they assembled. And somehow, to some degree, they had forgotten this, as, as we'll see. And the church had become about the church supremely. It was no longer about Him supremely. They lost the consciousness of Him being uh, gathered with Him. They lost the anticipation of gathering together and meeting with Him in, in his, his presence. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, that not only are when we come together in the church, when we assemble together in the church, it's not just us assembling, but He is assembling together with us. And it is very easy for a church to become about the church supremely rather than being about uh, Jesus. And so the decisions are made based upon what will be best for the church, what will uh, uh, grow the church as opposed to what will bless uh, Jesus and what is a church called to be biblically. It's probably never a good sign in any of our lives to talk more about uh, the church that we attend than uh, Jesus himself. Now, Jesus commends them in verses 2 and 3. And what a long list of commendations he lays out here! It's fabulous. Uh, He declared in verse 2, I know your works. So here's a busy church. It's an active church. Not busy in a negative way, but in a good way. It's an active church. It's a serving church. So it's not a lazy church. And it's not a church that has turned into what a church can so often turn into in a selfish-dominated kind of culture like the one that we live in. It hasn't turned into a bless-me club. Jesus says in verse 2, He commended them for their labor. And the word that He uses for labor means to labor to the point of exhaustion. They served God to the point of fall into bed at the end of the day, exhaustion. And they worked very, very hard at the things of the Lord. So it was a hard-working church. And to establish a church and a foothold for the kingdom of God in the city of Ephesus was hard work. It was a demonic center in the ancient world. And they did the work that was necessary for that to uh, happen. And they didn't just serve when it was convenient. They served to the point of personal sacrifice and beyond. And as all of us know, these kind of Christians are not a dime a dozen. These kind of churches are not a dime a dozen. And Jesus noticed it, and He appreciated it. He went on to commend them for their patience, for their hupomone, their patient, steadfast endurance. We used to talk about keep on keeping on, and that's what they did. And they did it in a hard, hard environment, to continue on with what God had called them to do and called them uh, to be. They epitomized the old saying that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. These were tough, sober-minded Christians that were a part of this church. Jesus then commended them for not bearing with those who are evil in verse 2. And so evil wasn't accommodated in the church. Evil wasn't tolerated within uh, the church, so it has a very high view of purity. It had a very high view of, of holiness, a very high view of what the church should be, and a high view of obedience to God's word. And again, their culture around them, very demonic, very wicked, but they didn't allow the culture to gain in its evilness to gain a foothold within the church. And they didn't allow the church to become what the temptation is so often, and that is a slightly Christianized version of the world around them. Again, they were sober-minded about Christianity, sober-minded about their faith. And all of this is very, very commendable, and Jesus appreciated it. Jesus commended them further in verse 2, Uh, for testing those who say they're apostles and are not, and then exposing them as liars. So here you have a biblical church. They maintain uh, the Bible as the standard for doctrine and for practice within that church. And Jesus commended them for their biblical purity. He commended them for their discernment in in leading uh, uh, the church and the body, there is a whole. In verse 6, uh, Jesus goes on to speak in this, very, uh, in this very same vein concerning the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We won't get into that, that this morning. We don't have the time. But we will look at it when we get to the church of Pergamos a little bit later in this series of, uh, of, of the seven uh, churches. In verse 3, Jesus restates his appreciation it's almost i mean he's already said it but this is so phenomenal about them that that and he's so appreciative of what he sees what what he can commend in that church he finds himself saying the same thing over again as he commends them for their perseverance their patience and their labor and after 40 years of existence Churches start to flag at 40 years, very often. And at 40 years of existence, this church still remained all of that. And you look at that and you go, wow, that's the perfect church. Could you tell me, pastor, where that church is? i would probably check it out next Sunday. But the letter doesn't stop, unfortunately, in verse 3. Not quite the perfect church. And Jesus goes on to exhort and, and to correct this church in verses 4 and 5. And he declared that despite all of this good, I mean, just think about the immensity, not just words on a page, but it represents a reality, a mindset. This is the kind of human being and Christian that attended these churches, uh, this church. This is the kind of church that it was in Ephesus. And you put it all on one side of a scale and you say how in the world could anything outweigh that much less one thing outweigh all of that in the mind of of the lord but here jesus says he has one thing against them and that one thing is so serious that if it's not corrected he said it will undo all of the good And it will result in Him removing uh, their lampstand from His active presence. And so we just say, wow, related to that. Whatever it is, even though it's just one thing, it is a really big deal. And apparently, it is drop-dead serious uh, to Jesus. And Jesus' complaint is found there in verse 4 when He declared that they had left their first love. And this refers to their love for Him, their love for Jesus. And you notice Jesus does not say that they had ceased to love Him. That's not what He said. Of course they still loved Him. But they had lost a certain quality of love that was important that no church lose And that no individual christian lose and the quality of love that they had left rather is this thing that jesus calls their first love and it refers to the love that they as a church and that every christian experiences when we first come to know jesus when we're saved and first love might be called engagement love. It might be called going together uh, kind of love. It's the, the love that a couple has at the beginning of their marriage or the beginning of their relationship when all they are is consumed with the other person. All they can think about is the other person. Any kind of uh, correspondence that they get, they read it and they reread it over and over again. And all they could think about was the next time they could spend uh, time uh, 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 together. And spiritually, it refers to the love that someone has for the Lord when we first come to know Him and His grace. And so we turn to the Old Testament for help in recognizing what it is that this first love is talking about. And where God cried out to His people through uh, Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. Jeremiah wrote, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, in their uh, backslidden state, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you. Something's past tense about their relationship with him that is not healthy. He said, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the early days of their relationship between them and God, the love of your betrothal, that first love, that going together love, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. And remember the imagery of the New Testament. The imagery of the New Testament is that we are as Christians the bride of uh, Christ. And uh, and one of the in illustrating all of this in terms of what it is that Jesus is saying, I think one of the most beautiful sights in life is to watch a bride on her wedding day. And to just look at the love that she has for her groom, for her uh, husband. But then so often what happens sometimes in a a marriage is that the love can take on a a lesser quality. It isn't that she doesn't still love him. She still loves him. But there's a lesser quality to, to that love. And then one day, as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years, somewhere in the midst of it, so often the husband can turn to the wife and say, I don't like what we've become. You're busy. I'm busy. We have stuff like we've never had stuff before, but I would trade all of it for when we didn't have two quarters to rub together, but we didn't care as long as we had one another. And when we loved each other's company, I want to go back to that, to love each other in the way that we once did. And the marriage and the relationship, it's civil. uh, Each one is absolutely committed to the other. Each is hardworking. Each is willing to sacrifice. But then one day you look at it and you think, where did the goo-goo eyes go? And I would trade all of the efficiency, the cold efficiency of this marriage, all of the hard work that my bride does, the two cars, the nice house, the lawn, all of that for her to jump into my arms when I come home from work once again, I would trade all of that for that first love to characterize us once again. But I didn't marry her supremely to have someone to make the beds or to raise the children or work together mutually toward beneficial goals in life. I married her because I was head over heels in love with her and she with me. I married her for the relationship, not all the things that she can do. And I don't know how we got here, but I don't like it. And I want to go back to when We were less efficient, less comfortable, less reserved, less experienced. And we were more in love. And Jesus is no different. He didn't save us because He needed a labor force, or that He needed a secretary, or an office manager, or theologians. He saved us for a relationship with Him, And all of these other things are important uh, in their proper place, but never as a replacement for the first love relationship with Him. And then as if Jesus almost can sense how thick someone like me, and perhaps you can be, on this issue, almost with the idea that they're still not getting this, how important this is to me, he then underlines the seriousness of all of this uh, to him when he warns them of the consequences of failing to listen to what he's talking about here. And when Jesus said that if they didn't repent from this, he would remove the lampstand from its place there at the end of verse 5. Jesus went on to speak about the fact that he would take that lampstand from its place, which, of course, we then ask ourselves, well, what was the place of this lampstand? Well, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. And you had those seven lampstands representing the seven church, and Jesus is standing in the midst of those lampstands, and, and, and those seven lampstands, enjoying the fullness of Jesus' active presence in those churches, and in those uh, the individuals that made up that church. And the result of this removal would mean that the people attending the church, over time, would get this kind of annoying sense that something's wrong here. I can't put my finger on it, but something's wrong. Everything sounds right, everything uh, looks right, but this place is no longer supremely about a relationship with Jesus, a- a- and, a- and, a- and as important as, as, as the service is, but it's no longer supremely about that. And then Jesus says, if act, if you get that lampstand gets removed from the fullness of my presence, then it ultimately will cease to thrive as a church. And what's true of a church is true of, of an individual. Jesus will not, will not bless a church with the fullness of His presence if it forgets that Christianity is supremely about a relationship with Him. Where Christian service becomes more important than the relationship as important as Christian service is in its place. But it must always merely flow out of the health of this, this relationship. And why in the world would Jesus as he threatens to remove his active presence in their midst why would he do that because why would he bless a church why would he cause it to become larger why would he cause it to become more influential in a community or in the world as a whole if all it will ever do is just infect more people with the same disease that it's infected with he said i won't do it i won't play any part in that unless things change and jesus is counsel to them and really anyone in that condition whether a church in this day or us as individual christians he gives it to us in verse five and there's hope he introduces hope in the in the in, in the situation and one of the great words that he uses to introduce hope in this situation of having left their first love and the consequences of it is you notice there in verse 5 that they hadn't lost their first love, but they had left their first love. You oftentimes hear somebody say, well, I've lost my first uh, love. But that's not what, uh, the way that Jesus puts it here. He says they had left their first love. If we've lost something, then we have no confidence that we will ever be able to find that again. It's lost. But when we leave something, someplace, we know where we've left it, and we know how to go right back to that place and uh, and find it there. And Jesus then uh, proceeds to tell them and us how to find that first love that they once had and how to remember where they had left it. And in three very, very simple steps, he said, remember from where you've fallen. In other words, remember when your love for me was first love in terms of quality. I'm not, I'm not challenging the fact that you love me, but when it was first love in terms of quality, when you knew far less than you know now, when you have far less experience than you do now as a Christian, but you loved me more, And it's interesting that they had all of these other things going for them, and yet Jesus described their condition as fallen. To leave first love is to have fallen from the highest Christian life that we can experience, and to fall into something inferior. And 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 it's to live in a fallen condition, And that's the word uh, that, that he uses. And it's very, very easy to come to a place as a Christian where I determine my spiritual maturity on the basis of how many things I'm doing and how much spiritual stuff I know as opposed to the health and the depth of my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he called on them after saying, remember, remember that first love. And if it's a memory, then we're in the church of Ephesus. But he doesn't leave us there. He then goes on and he called them to repent. And to repent means simply to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction. And to look at somebody in the church of Ephesus to look at it and say, he's absolutely correct. I have left uh, my first love, and, and, uh, and I get exactly what he's talking about here, and so I'm going to have a change of mind about investing one more hour in the kind of fallen Christianity that I'm experiencing and li- living, and I'm going to have a change of mind ab- about it, and I'm going to turn back to uh, a, a first love relationship with him. It's a change of mind about being satisfied or accepting of a, a fallen uh, from first love Christianity. And, and so to have that change of mind. And then with that change of mind, uh, Jesus knows that the question that will rise up in our minds is just how in the world does this happen? I want all that back. Jesus, you're talking to me. I want all. I want that first love. I want that betrothal love. That's the relationship with you that, that I, I want. And, uh, 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 and, but how in the world? And Jesus tells us, number three, return and do your first works. In other words, go back and do the same things that you used to do when your relationship with God was growing and when it was marked by uh, first love. What place did Bible reading and Bible study have in my life when that, that love characterized my life? And to go back to that. What place did prayer have in my life when this characterized my relationship with Him? And then to go back to that. What place did church attendance and Christian fellowship have in my life at that time? And to go back to it. Who were my influencers? Who were my spiritual partners Uh, peers and mentors and and uh, friends back then, verses who I've made uh, now, return to that? What place did praise and worship have in my life? How important was it to me back then? And then to return to that. What place, uh, and what about the use of our time or the sharing the gospel with people or seeking to be used by God, waking up every day and asking to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, the excitement or the anticipation of of a new day and, Lord, uh, uh, fill me with Your Spirit and lead me today and use me today for Your uh, uh, kingdom and then to return to that. And Jesus says that as we do that, we will discover the first love relationship with Jesus right where we left it. And we left it when we left those things. And we have Jesus' promise that if we go back and do the first works, that we will find that relationship right where we left it at some point in time. And then Jesus, again, even the third layer here on this letter, still not confident, still knowing of our capacity to sit in a room like this or in the church at Ephesus, and still not be impacted with how serious this is, He adds another sobering call, a call uh, for him who has an ear to hear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. It's not a sermon. It's not a letter I sent to put enough verses in the Bible that it would be a substantial enough book to carry to church. But I'm talking about my heart here. And I'm talking about how, what is important between you and I, and how Christianity is represented within the world around us. And then he gives his promise to overcomers there at the end of verse 7 To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so the tree of life represents eternal life with God. Uh, all uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2 as it's described there. We'll run into it a little bit later in the book of Revelation. And the paradise of God almost certainly speaks of heaven, as we'll see it spoken of later when we get to chapter 22. So People get anxious about uh, this passage here, and, 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 but what it cannot mean is it cannot mean that only those who love Jesus in this way are going to end up getting into heaven because that would make salvation something that is based upon works rather than based upon a a gift from God to us. It's not a product of works. Jesus just simply appears to be reminding them and, and us that as we serve and test and persevere in our Christian life out of a love for Him, that at the end of such a life is great blessing and reward, everlasting life, in the glory of heaven. And so Jesus here speaks about the loss of a first love within a church or within an individual life. And He lets us know in, in, in so many ways that this is a catastrophic loss. It is a catastrophic loss Loss in a Christian's life or in a church's life when it's lost. And the only response that can change that condition is to repent of it, to realize that it is a catastrophic loss, and then as an act of my will to determine. I'm not going to spend, by the grace of God, one more hour invested in what I have am living here so far, however far away from what Jesus describes. And then to go back and to do uh, the first works. This is very serious to Jesus. He starts these letters off in a very serious tone, and they're all all quite uh, serious. But He's certainly the one thing none of us wants to do. And I don't know where any of us are in our own personal relationship with the Lord. So I'm not looking to lash anyone or anything like that. But, but the, the recognition here that Jesus says it four different ways. Don't blow this off. And it must mean that He is used to churches and individual Christians just blowing this off because it may not be viewed as that serious within the culture or within Christendom in the United States as a whole. And so he lets us know it's drop dead serious to me. I save you for a relationship, and everything else is to come out of the health and the intimacy of that relationship. And it's a wonderful encouragement and it's a wonderful exhortation as well. I have felt its stripes many times in the course of my Christian life. And it's always a good word, always a good word. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Jesus, we thank You for Your clarity, and we receive Your encouragement this morning. We receive Your exhortation. We receive Your instruction. And You're the only one that can look at us as a church as a whole in our individual lives and to see just where this exhortation of Yours lands in each of our lives. We don't need to know we don't want to know just concerning our own lives. But we pray, Lord, that you would keep in the light of what you have laid out here, keep any of us who are in a place where we have left our first love from investing even another hour in that, but to turn back to you. And to not only enjoy the relationship that you died upon the cross to provide to us, but that this relationship with you might be as meaningful to you as you desire it to be. And we pray for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.